It is a new year. Depending on who you ask, it's a new decade or it starts at the end of this year. It doesn't really matter. We are into the 20s. Will they be the roaring 20s? Who knows? The way things are started, it's kind of looking that way. But Jesus is still on His throne. And that's what, that's what matters. Well, today we are going to start a challenging and I think interesting new series. And it, it's new in, in a certain sense, but in another sense it's not. Every few years, every three or four years, I circle back to this series and bring us back to our fundamentals. And that's what this series is. As you can see, it's titled The Cross and the Empty Tomb. And what it is, is a series about looking looking at why we do certain things as Christians. You know, I heard uh, someone was telling me that uh, they learned to make meatloaf with their mother. And she would get the mixture ready and get it good and set. And then she'd cut the end of it off and put it in the pan. And then she would bake it. Well, the daughter grew up and she began to make meatloaf the same way. And her daughter would help her. And she'd get it all mixed up. She'd cut the end of it off and then put it in the pan. And the daughter said, why do you cut the end of the meatloaf off? And she said, well, that's how I was taught to do it. You know, my mom did it that way, and, and, you know, that's just the way you do meatloaf. Well, that answer wasn't good enough for the youngest daughter, and she said, yeah, but why? Why do you do that? And her mom got to thinking, you know, I really don't know. So she called her mother up, and she said, hey, a real quick question. I know we've always done it this way. Uh, you know, you make the meatloaf, you cut the end of it off, put it in the pan, and then put it in the oven. But why do we do that? I mean, what is it that, does it change something? Is it, is it, is there too much of the ingredients? We just don't want to, we want to make sure it's not just over, over, uh, salted or whatever it might be. And she said, no, it's nothing like that. The pan wasn't big enough. I just cut the end of it off. That's just the, that's just the way we've always done it. But that's what the girl thought. The reason we do it this way is, we, you know, that's the way I was taught. You know, that's, that's the way I've always, I've always done it. There was a church that I heard about that took communion every Sunday like we do. And they placed a linen cloth over the communion trays. Over the bread and over the cup. And this had been done for years and years and years. And someone said, hey, do we have to keep putting the cloth over communion? It was like, yes, we have to do that. This is what we do. This is our practice. Weekly communion is very important to us. And we are not changing anything about it. And uh, the person said, well, wait a minute. why, Why do we cover it? And the answer was, well, that's what we've always done. We've always covered communion. And again, okay, yeah, I get that. I get that that's how we've always done communion. But why have we always done it that way? Well, they got to researching and they got to talking to a few of the old timers. And the reason why communion was always covered was not biblical. Was it found in scripture? It wasn't holy. It was practical. 
It was because years and years and years ago, church buildings didn't have air conditioning, and so they had to raise the windows, and the reason you cover communion is to keep the flies out of it. But somebody had just said, well, that's just what we do. You know, nobody ever took the time to explain why they did those things. They just did them because they had always been done that way. And things, and the things we do at church can be a lot like that if we're not careful. You know, and that's why every few years I kind of like to come back home. Okay, I kind of like to get back to our fundamentals and remind us of why it is we do the things we do. Plus, we have people that have not been with us since I did this series a few years ago. And so I think it's important for you to hear these things about why it is we do the things we do. You see, if you are a, uh, if you're a churchgoer, and you've been a churchgoer for any amount of time, then you know that certain things happen at church. You expect there to be seen. You expect someone to lead a prayer. You expect to hear scriptures being read. You expect to hear a sermon that, that comes from the Bible. And in churches like ours, you have the opportunity to take communion. And no matter what kind of church you attend, there's always going to be a plate passed to take up a collection. Okay, now that's, that one's just across the board. For most churchgoers, all of these things are a given, are they not? You expect those things when you go to church, but have you ever stopped to ask why? Why do we do things we do? Why do we go to church? Why do we worship? Why are we baptized? Why do we take communion? Why do we give our money? You see, a lot of times we don't explain those things. We just do them. And we assume that new people come in and they see us do them and they jump in and they start doing them without giving them any education, any knowledge for the importance of these things. And so for the next several weeks, that's what we're going to look at. Today, we're just talking about, we're just kind of laying the groundwork. Why do we do what we do? The answer is baked right into the title of the sermon. Okay. And over the next few weeks, we're going to start breaking this down. Okay, we're going to spend, starting next Sunday, we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about why we go to church and then what is the church. We're going to look at why we worship, okay? And there is a difference between going to church and worshiping, is there not? Okay, and but you may not realize that, and so we're going to nuance those a little bit. And so we're going to spend a week talking about why we Worship. We're going to journey all the way back to the book of Moses, uh, to the book of Exodus and, and Moses and how he led the Israelites out of Egypt to Mount Sinai to worship God. Then we're going to take two weeks and talk about why we are baptized. Now then, and I'll go ahead and give you a preview. Here's a statement of that. You know, the, the, the world has been fighting over baptism and what it does and when it takes place and what form for 2,000 years. So we're not going to solve it in two sermons, but we're going to talk about why we believe baptism is important. Okay? Why we baptize. 
We're going to spend a week talking about why we do the things we just did. Why we pass a plate that's got little bitty pieces of bread in it that don't taste great. Why we take a little bitty less than a shot glass of grape juice. You know, what the meaning of those things are. Why we do them. We're going to talk about why we pass a plate around. And listen, I'm just going to go ahead and say this, especially those of you that lead communion. It is not to pay my salary. Okay? Yes, that's part of it. But that's not the main reason, as somebody said recently. Okay? There are much deeper reasons for why we give our money. It is to serve the kingdom. To advance God's kingdom. So this is what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Is we're going to talk about all of these things. Because a lot of times we do them without much thought. Or a lot of times we do them without a full and complete understanding. We just, we just do them because everybody else is doing it. You know? It might be that you took communion this morning because the person next to you handed you the tray. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen a, a new person come in and they sit down next to you and you just hand them the tray? We don't take the time to explain it and they're kind of like... And then the real moment of truth is what do I do with a cup? Because at some churches that have wooden pews, you put it in the little cup holder on the back of the pew. You remember those? Sometimes you put it in the tray and you send it on down the line. Okay? You know, we just, a visitor sits down, never been there. We just assume, well, you know what you do. You're at church. You t- I'm taking communion. You take communion. And we don't even take the time to explain it. We just do it because the person next to us has done it. Don't you think it's important to know why? To have a deeper understanding of these things. That's what this series is about. And it is one of my my favorite series to preach. For many people, the answer to all of those questions that I just asked is because that's what you do at church. Or that's how I was raised. For others, it could be because, and out of a sincerity, they say it's because I don't want to go to hell. And yet another answer I've heard is, well, because that's what the Bible says. And, you know, those are reasons, and some of them are are, are legitimate. But where's the power? Where's the, the conviction in answers like that? The reason why Christianity seems so powerless to so many in the watching world could have something to do with our motives For why we do the things we do. Have you ever thought about that? Why do you do that? I don't know. I'll just do it. Why do you go to church? Why do you guys take communion? Because they handed it to me? I don't know. You know, why do you give your money? Oh, well, just because we got to pay the, we got to pay everybody. You got to pay the light bill and all that. And okay, yeah, but there's more to it than all of that. We want to know why. When we convert someone to Christ and then tell them to go to church and to serve and give because it is their duty, we have undersold Christ. And this reduces the sacrifice of Jesus to an exchange of religious goods and services, which is all based on works, which is called what? Legalism. That's not why we do the things we do. Okay? Is there a duty to being a Christian? Yes, of course. 
But is that the main thing that should drive us? No, I don't think it is. Because then it can be reduced to, well, if I do this and I do that, then you'll give me this. That's not the the way, that's not the exchange rate that God has set up. There are deeper and more important reasons. All of these are reasons to do the things we do. Some are better than other, but none of them are the actual reason why. The reason, the reason why we do all of those things, why we come to church, why we worship, why we are baptized, why we take communion, why we give our money, why we serve, the reason is because of the cross and the empty tomb. And as we ask all of these questions over the next six to eight weeks, that ultimately is going to be the answer. We do these things because of the cross and the empty tomb. Now, we're going to take each of those questions with this answer and we're going to nuance it. We're going to talk about how the cross and the empty tomb affects communion and baptism and what it means for why we give and all of those things. That's what we're going to do. And so we're going to start off right now with the very first sermon that was ever preached in the Christian era. It was preached on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after after Passover. Jesus has ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come on Peter. He has stood up before the crowd that is gathered and he begins to preach the first gospel, the first good news message that was ever preached. And in chapter 2, starting in verse 22, he says, You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonder, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this, this man, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And so what we see from this text right off the bat is that Jesus is God's Son. What Peter is saying is Jesus is the Son of God. This is evidenced by His miracles, by the signs, by the wonders that He performed. And that He surrendered His life over to sinful men. And He was killed on a cross because of our sins. God brought Him up out of the tomb, breaking the curse of death. And now we see the cross in the empty tomb. We see that it's baked right into this passage. Okay, you see God's son who did these great things. He was crucified, but God raised him up. Years later, Paul would be writing. And he's writing to the Corinthian church, which was an absolute mess. Now, if you ever get to thinking and feeling bad about our church or church in general, go read the Corinthian letters, okay? Because those churches are a mess and they'll make you feel pretty good about the stuff we got going on, okay? But Paul is writing and he is 
pointing out to them the most important things that he ever passed on to them. And in chapter 15, 3 and 4, he says, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. In other words, I'm giving you the most important things that were ever given to me. And they are that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now then you drop down to verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith, and your faith has been in vain. He says that these are the most important things that I've ever been given. That Jesus came, Jesus died, he was buried in a tomb, but that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, just as it was foretold. In the scriptures, these are the most important things that I receive. And then he goes on and he talks about the, the resurrection. And he is saying, if it's not the cross and the empty tomb, if it's not about the cross and the empty tomb, then, then our faith is useless. Because there's no foundation to it. It all comes back to this. It all comes back to this to this idea of the cross and the, and the empty tomb. But there's another reason as to why we do the things we do. And so, again, this talks about a cross. And it, talks, it reminds us of the empty tomb. So we're going to keep digging a little deeper. We're going to go back into the book that we just finished up toward the end of last year in Mark chapter 8. Mark is writing, and he's quoting Jesus, and he says, He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, I want you to read this yellow part with me. Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? You see the, the, the challenge that Jesus lays out for us. Take up your cross... And, and, and follow me. And we, we talk about that a lot. We talk about cross-bearing and, and, and what that means. To be a, a living sacrifice and to follow after Him. Uh, one, of my, one of my professors uh, by the name of Lee Camp, he has written a, a book that goes by the title uh, Mere Discipleship. And he talks about these very things. It's, he challenges us to think about what the church is and what communion is and the, what the, the meaning of the cross is. <clears throat> and he's talking about this and, and he goes on and he quotes a, another professor, which was actually his professor by the name of, of John Yoder. 
And John Yoder says this in Lee's book, It is common practice to spiritualize Jesus' cross in the life of believers. But Jesus' call to bear the cross is not mere counsel that we should be patient in illness or persevere in grief or persist in suffering. The call to bear the cross is not mere spiritual counsel that we must patiently bear the suffering borne by all humanity, whether sickness or betrayal or failed dreams, and whether followers of Jesus or not. Surely, our faith graces us with such virtues as perseverance, perseverance. but this is not what is meant by take up your cross and follow me. Instead, Jesus would have us know that taking up the way of the kingdom means taking up a cross, that taking up the way of the kingdom means we shall have to bear the brunt and fear of a yet unredeemed world. That's that's pretty heavy, is it not? He's saying, you know, we kind of spiritualize the cross. Just, Just be patient. Just persevere. And yes, those things are true, but it's not just about being spiritually patient. It's not just about doing that in our illness or persevering in in grief and suffering. We know that when Jesus says, take up a cross, it means that we have to lay down our own life. Okay? It's not just about me being spiritual. It's about me and you putting our own agendas aside and looking around at our neighbors and saying, what does that person need and how can I help meet that need? It's about putting others first. That's what that means. That's what this this taking up the cross is about. Taking up the cross means bearing the cost of faithfulness to the way of Christ, dying to self, sacrificing for others. You see, when we just spiritualize it, like, oh, just hang in there, just pray, just, just persevere... It's easy to say those things to somebody. Taking up a cross means getting your hands dirty. It means that instead of feeling sympathy for somebody, you empathize with them. You get down in the mud with the person. And you you help that person up. That's, that's what cross-bearing is, is really about. German pastor and theologian and eventually martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ bids us to take up our cross, He bids us to come and die. You see, if we don't, if we don't understand the empty tomb then the cross is scary. It's too risky because it means the death of ourselves and and selfish ways. But it's no more scary than death without hope in Christ. Romans 6.23 reminds us what? That the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the writer of Hebrews says this. 
Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The work of Christ on the cross enables us to live a life of love. It empowers us to live a life of of service. It gives us the ability to forgive when we did not think we could forgive. There's probably not a person in this room who has somebody in their life that has done something so horrible to them that you didn't think you could ever forgive them. And it might be that you have not forgiven them. The only way to truly forgive somebody is to do that in the power of Jesus Christ. And Jesus had a lot to say about forgiveness. He knew we would struggle with it. He knew it wasn't going to be an easy thing. That's why he didn't say, forgive somebody and then just leave it at that. He said, no. You forgive them as many times as it takes. Now I'm paraphrasing. But Peter comes and says, hey, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? Because that sounds pretty good. You know, somebody does something to you so horrible that you have to forgive them seven times. That's not a great friend. Okay, seven times being hurt by somebody's a lot. And so Peter's thinking, that's pretty good. But Jesus says, no, not seven times. Seventy times. Or another translation says, seventy times seven times. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying, hey, look, no matter what, no matter how many times it takes, forgive them. The power of the resurrection, the work of Jesus on the cross is what enables us to forgive without fear of the consequences. We don't live in in fear of death because of the resurrection, because of the, the empty tomb. Because of the resurrection and because of the empty tomb, we have life. And the message of the resurrection proclaims that death has been defeated And thus we cannot be beaten because we now have that victory because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And so that professor that I mentioned a minute ago, Lee Camp, in the same book, he kind of brings up this paradox that comes out of this statement that Jesus made of take up your cross and, and follow me. And he refers to it as the death paradox. You see, the cross of Jesus signifies certain things for his disciples. The first is this, that Christ died in our stead. Okay? We were dead in our sins. Scripture tells us that. We just kind of talked about it from Romans. The wages of sin is what? Death. Okay, the wages of sin is death. But Christ took that. He went to the cross, made an atoning sacrifice of his life. He, as Philippians uh, puts it, he emptied himself and he went to the cross. Okay? And so that's the first thing. Christ died in our stead. The second thing is that Christ calls us, Christ calls us to come and die with him. 
You see, when Christ died for us, His atoning sacrifice undid the power of sin and death so that we are no longer required to die as slaves to sin. But following Christ means that we must be willing to die. You see the paradox? Because Christ died, we no longer have to die as slaves to sin, but we have to be willing to die to ourselves. Through sacrifice, through service, through love. For the rebellious powers who have yet to accept His Lordship. He says the, Christ, the, the cross proclaims that we no longer need to die as a consequence for our sins. And yet we must die because of the world's sins. The reason we do and, in, and are empowered to do all of these things is because of what Jesus did for us. He went to the cross bearing our sins. And He left an empty tomb freeing us from the bondage of death. It all comes back to the cross and the empty tomb. And so now we focus it back on ourselves. The question is, why? If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have confessed that Jesus is Lord, you've been baptized into His name, you have been resurrected to new life, and are following Him, why? Are you doing it because that's what everybody else was doing? I love camp. I've gone to camp a lot in my life. I went a few times as a camper when I was a kid, but I've done a lot more uh, counseling as an adult. And you always see a lot of baptisms at camp, and it's encouraging. But sometimes, I think some people are just kind of following the crowd. And their emotions get the best of them. And they get swept up with that without fully counting the cost of what Jesus is requiring. And they just go along with the crowd and they just do it. And that might be how you came to Christ. And if that is, I don't mean to disparage that. But what I mean to do is to ask you to truly reflect on why it is you serve. Why it is you gave your life to Christ? Why is it that you believe the things that you believe and you do the things you do as a believer? It may be because that's just what you were taught and that's what you saw everybody else doing and that's what you were told to do and you know the Bible tells you so and I don't want to go to hell and all of those things and those are reasons and they're fine but hopefully... Hopefully it'll all come back to this and we'll have new understanding that the real reason why we follow Christ is because what God did through Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. Because those are the most important things for us to understand. 
And if we will understand the importance of the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection, then we will have the answer to why we do all these other things. We'll know why it is we give and why we go to church and why we worship and why we commune and why we're, why we're baptized. So when you engage someone on a spiritual level, do you have this at the forefront of your conversation? If the focus is something else, then refocus. Here we are at the beginning of the year. You know, and I've, you know, I've told you before what I think about New Year's resolutions. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. I think they should just be resolutions. If you resolve to make a change, I don't think you need to wait until a date. I think you need to resolve and go on and do it right then and there. That being said, a lot of people think about New Year's resolutions. It's also the year 2020, and every church and their brother has something about 2020 focus, 2020 vision, 2020 something. Sight. Okay, we're not going to do that for our theme, by the way. But it does remind us at the beginning of the year that maybe I do need to refocus some things. Maybe I need to refocus my understanding about church, about Jesus, about communion, about baptism, about service. Now is the time to do this. That's why I thought this would be the, uh, the, the, the best series to start our year out with. Because again, this is about going back to our foundation. What sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is the resurrection. Lots of people have died in the name of their religion. Lots of deities have died. Christianity has the only one that's come back. And if we will grasp that, grasp the cross, grasp the empty tomb, we'll have the answers to everything else we need. So what is your focus? Is it on the resurrection? Or is it on something else? If it's something else, hey, change today. Let's get refocused together on resurrection, on new life, new beginning, new heaven, new earth. Because that's what has been given to all of us. When we gave our life to Jesus and we laid down our old life and He raised us to new life. But that doesn't happen without the cross and the empty tomb.